Helen Frankenthaler came of age in 1950s New York. She was a child of the Upper East Side and one of three daughters of a New York State Supreme Court justice. After she graduated from Bennington, she was determined to make a life as a painter. And she did succeed in establishing herself as one of the most acclaimed American painters of the post-war period. Though she was born into privilege, she left that world to pursue her artistic dreams and soon earned a reputation for her daring paintings. She traveled the world and fell in and out of love, including her storied tumultuous romance with art critic Clement Greenberg. She married Robert Motherwell, an abstract painter, and continued to work and paint, gaining quite a bit of fame, but also stark criticism for her unusual style. Alexander Nemiroff brings us the story of this pioneering artist and a look into New York's 1950s art scene. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to Alexander Nemiroff about his book, Fierce Poise, Helen Frankenthaler and 1950s New York. So we're going to start off with a very basic question. Who was Helen Frankenthaler? Helen Frankenthaler was uh, a native New Yorker who uh, was born in 1928, grew up in a well-to-do family. Her father was a New York State Supreme Court justice and uh, went on to go to Bennington College in the 1940s and learn how to make modern paintings, um, Picasso-like paintings. And then returning to New York City after graduation uh, in 1950, and then on through that decade, the decade that my book concerns, um, began to fashion her own type of uh, abstract art in a largely male-dominated world of uh, ambitious painters then and there. And you never met her, but there were some sort of um, uncanny associations to her. What made you want to take on a project like this one to just immerse yourself in this life and this this world? I think it was, Yvette, uh, just my attraction to her paintings foremost, her paintings from the 1950s, uh, which have a quality of um, catching life on the wing, if that makes sense, uh, a feeling of... Um, trying to portray just uh, the lived experience of um, momentary sensations, you know, that which greets the eye or sort of um, rustles across the, sen the senses on a given day, uh, the different emotions we may have to, um, for which we have these simple tidy names, sadness, joy, things like that, but which I think we all know are more complicated, more shaded, possibly beyond the power of language to portray, but which art, you know, particularly a very finely attuned art can maybe sense and moreover depict without then becoming yet another contribution to the disenchantment of the world, you know, to the way we all want to name, claim, show, argue, classify, and in essence be done with that which moves us. So that's a big reason, Yvette. Uh, just, uh, I don't think any artist ever did it as well as Helen in terms of portraying life on the wing. Uh, 
But there is this personal connection to, you know, Helen's senior year at Bennington College back in 1948-49 was my father's first year as a professor there, and she actually took a class with him. Your father, Howard Howard Nemirov. Howard Nemirov, yes, who was a poet, uh, a very distinguished poet. And although I never met Helen, I feel like I knew about her from a long time ago. And, you know, this book has been a long time coming, I suppose, slowly working up for me uh, as something that I wanted to write. Your admiration of her was always there in one way or another, I get the feeling, but the reasons for admiring her, I think, have kind of morphed over the years, maybe certainly from the late 80s to then the later decades. And I know this is this is a complicated question, and folks need to read the, the book to understand this, this change. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about what made that change for you from the way that you perceived her back then, say, in in the late 80s, um, and what brought you now to this different kind of appreciation for her and her work? I think in the late 1980s, when Helen was delivering very kind of arch conservative viewpoints about the failing state of culture um, in the United States, And when I was a young person in my 20s, um, I think that uh, I was angry then, you know, and rightfully so, as perhaps many people in their 20s are angry. Um, Just uh, angry in a way that was self-directed, too. I mean, here I was studying art history in graduate school, um, and one hardly needs to consult a dictionary to look at just the different things that were happening in 1989, let's say the uh, tearing down of the Berlin Wall, Tiananmen Square, one could go on like the world then as now, you know, calamitous um, and seem to really require uh, from anyone, maybe even especially a young person, some sort of direct commitment to social change. And here I was studying art history. And uh, I think, you know, I was probably, um, when I was contemptuous of art that was so unapologetic, such as Helen's, about its own capacity to deliver a unique experience outside of space and time almost, to deliver something um, like, an experience of um, calm, of suspension, of poise, of clarity, whose power to change our lives personally existed precisely to the extent that we could not define it. You know, it was kind of a nameless feeling. All you knew is that you had been changed. You know, I I was contemptuous of that kind of thing because uh, it seemed to be so pointless and indeed to hit so close to home as, a definition of that which I myself was studying, right? So um, let's just say I got a little older and wiser and I've become a parent, uh, you know, 20 years ago. I've also come to just reflect on and appreciate the high seriousness 
of my father's approach to his craft and uh, also my aunt uh, who was the photographer Deanne Arbus uh, her high seriousness too I mean they believed in art absolutely and I think I've eventually caught up to them caught up to Helen and I'm grateful that I have you do say in your book that this is a young person's book. I was really interested in this idea and what that could mean as I continue to read. And of course it is. I can see that in the way that you take up so much about her childhood and her adolescence and her schooling, but then also beyond the formative years, then the, the decade where we are after youth, the 50s that your book covers. It's a window into the next phase of life. Um and for however her story differs from anyone else's, it remains a coming, a sort of a coming of age in terms of the ways that she is finding her footing uh, in so many uh, facets of life. Um, and I want to go back to something that you said this this idea of the of the high seriousness of of the art of art. I've read a lot. Uh, alongside your book and watched interviews uh, with Helen Frankenthaler where she discusses the idea of beauty and it's as if this is just such a slippery word and the idea of aesthetics was just also corny or irrelevant while she was working so hard on her art and and then I get the feeling that she, she was not going to back down from the, the idea of of beauty or or just the idea of of art of of the beauty of her art is that is that a little misguided of me am i making the wrong connections no i think i think you're right Yvette. i think that helen certainly never backed down uh from anyone or anything that's partly what enabled her to be successful but uh, that word beauty, I agree, that's a tricky one. Uh, I, I might prefer the word lightness. Uh, you know, Helen said that the light touch is the, the strongest of all. And so what uh, critics at the time and really since have understood in a gendered way um, to be, as it were, merely pretty or decorative, that is the sort of lightness of um you know the pastel colors and so on of her work uh i have come to see in her work as um expressing a great seriousness you know when we talk about um gravity weight i need to ponder something um you know we tend to affix glory and significance to weightiness like that and there's nothing to argue uh, in, in, in designating gravity as, as something that is worthy of our respect. However, Helen's pictures have really taught me that, you know, the single leaf, as it were, um, fluttering down from a branch or the play of sunlight on a wall, these, are, these can bring a person to tears and... Uh, I think the trick, Yvette, in recognizing that kind of feeling, and as 
the, the feeling that moreover that Helen's work is interested in exploring and these feelings don't have to be as it were pretty or um, beautiful I mean I think of whenever I think of Helen's pictures I think for example of like muddy slushy snow in the gutters of Manhattan some sometimes with some of them mm-hmm. I do think that way but that has its own kind of pathos and sort of remarkable power if one actually stops to stare at it mm-hmm. uh, you know in in thinking about these kind of things uh, I realize how swiftly it can sound like uh, an expression of mere um, individuality, you know, Mm -hmm. that if I see that leaf or see that light on the wall, uh, it might easily be chalked up to a sign as a sign of solipsism, Mm -hmm. privilege, uh, or indeed um, just more generally the the individuality that is a prepackaged commercial phenomenon in our world where we're taught to um, be almost like each one of us is a kind of imperial power trying to claim as much resources and experiences as is possible. Like it all kind of accrues to our sovereign sense of our own right to claim as much as we possibly can from others, from life itself, from the earth, you name it. And yet, I don't see it that way. I mean, obviously, what I just described is totally rampant on the earth. I mean, I don't dispute that for a moment. It's horrible. But the kind of experience I'm not, I'm talking about, these momentary sensations, never, I will never agree that those experiences, which are foundational to who we are, I think, are to be understood purely in terms of um, contributing to the cruelty and social injustice of the world. I will never believe that. Your book covers a very specific time period in terms of the history of the United States, of New York, of the art scene, and of the life and career of Helen Frankenthaler. Uh, But her career spanned 60 years, why was the decade of the 50s so important for you for this book? I think her paintings then from then most appealed to me. And I think they appealed to me most because they're most raw. They're the rawest work that she made. Her paintings from the 1960s, for example, which are quite glorious and powerful in their own way, have more of an achieved feeling um, uh, as if coming from an eminence who is growing ever more secure in her powers and able almost like a, a, like a, you know, a top level magician to deliver effects as needed uh, magic tricks as needed. Uh, But what they miss, at least for me is this, sense that I think we can all experience when we think back to our 20s or as we're experiencing our 20s now, that is uh, how profoundly uncertain it is, Mm -hmm. that time of life is, and how it's glories and ecstasies and frankly depressing um, painfulness are all wrapped up with this lack of certitude. 
you know, Helen thought very, she said to her dealer once that she didn't think she would live past the age of 35. And when she just had a morbid temperament in that way, which may be hard to square with her light pictures, but mm -hmm. to me, it's not a contradiction at all. Just think um, there's something about that decade for her in her work that really moved me as though by looking at it, I could understand a little bit about my 20s, mm -hmm. uh, which were in the 1980s, one of, I think many people would agree, one of the, the grimmest decades in American history. Um, but I, you know, I want to be clear, and I think you understand this, uh, but clear to potential readers that this is not really a book about me. I don't, I don't uh, really talk about me except in the introduction. But in fact, looking back on it now that I've written it, I do see that uh, this is a way for me to think about what it is for many people, including me, to be in or have been in in one's 20s. No, I totally understand what you're saying. Uh, um, she was 23 years old when she had her first solo show. Yes. And I thought back to when I was 23, and that, that was the age I was when I got my first job. Uh, teaching, you know, so I just, I kept thinking back to oh when she was twenty three or when when I was thirty eight, you know, <laughs> or whatever it might be. Um, as she thought uh, thirty eight was middle age, and I want to ask you about that too in a little bit. But uh, no, I think it's a it's a book that doesn't um, block us off from someone who who's so different from from me, for instance. Um, it's it's very it's a story. It's a very powerful and compelling story. And I learned m more about her um, uh, than, I, than I knew before. And you do this very interesting thing where you structure each of the chapters here around a particular day in that decade of the 50s. And even as you move across the timeline, uh, Every day is contextualized far more broadly, of course. And I imagine that there were many other days for you to focus on. How did you, well, this is a terrible question. How did you, I was going to ask you, how did you distill things down to these days in particular? But what, I, what I'm really getting at is just how much I admire the structure. The chapters do tell a very full and coherent story it's a it's a very full story it's not just the decade but that decade was so important in her life and I'd be a little worried that you know other biographers will borrow this structure it's very effective I thought um mm, I just fell into it um and I don't want to diminish this idea in the least but it put it reminded me of uh, conversations I've had with two authors on this podcast, one was Mega Majumdar and one was Dennis Mahoney, who both said that, that they were so influenced in writing their respective books in almost that, you know, Netflix 11 episodes or whatever it is. Uh. Um, and and I, it, there was something about moving through the book that way um, that was also kind of fun <laughs> for me to just follow uh, the decades uh, in this in this episodic way. I just I, I have to tell you that I just really enjoyed 
um, there's nothing lost for me in the story as I as I move from one day, one chapter to the next day and another year. Um, so when we get to uh, 19, when, when we start with 1950, with her arrival, and we learn an awful lot about Helen in 1950, but also about the younger Helen. And it, it just seems like she was predestined somehow to be this really gifted child who would go on to be an extremely gifted artist. Yes, that's right. Um, she, her, her father uh, used to say that, you know, she's fantastic. And I think both her parents, but maybe especially her father, doted on her and thought she was destined for something special. Of course, it's bittersweet because her father died uh, from a relatively sudden illness when Helen was 11. And that set her back hugely and was a huge event in her life, her whole life. I have no doubt about it. Uh, um, in addition to causing kind of rampant psychosomatic set of illnesses when she was an adolescent, I think it just stayed with her as a depressive force. Though things being complicated, it also was what led her to art, I think, and led her to not only hang on to art, but really exploit art uh, as though her life depended on it because it did, you know, mm -hmm. and you look at some of these bright pictures that are almost sometimes zany in their mm -hmm. bright colors and so on. You feel that this is, as one of my uh, sources told me, uh, this is a defeat of the darkness, wow. you know, mm -hmm. and in our sort of administered world now we have like I don't know, light, cheery, escape, escape entertainments and so on. And then we have on the other side kind of real events and situations and hard-nosed reporting and opinionating. Um, perhaps there's not enough attention paid to the way that, you know, again, when one, that there's a kind of um, true power to certain kinds of lightness certain kinds of joy and that power comes from having defeated or at least fought to a standstill some kind of darkness mm -hmm. i did yvette wanted to go back just a little bit to what you had been asking me about the structure and just mm -hmm. say that um, the structure for the book um, 11 different days came to me really in relation to helen's paintings themselves which is to say that precisely this quality of like lived experience, daily life, uh, just the sensation of walking down the street, getting a cup of coffee, having an argument with your parent, you know, with your mother or whatever the case may have been for Helen, like all these things were in play, mm -hmm. though her work is never diaristic or mm -hmm. oversharing because it's never as a, it's never like directly personal but it all, it comes from a personal place constantly. And that personal source is just simply living one's life. So I, I knew that I wanted in honor of the pictures to write about individual days. And that's the way I presented it to, um, uh, you know, when I was getting a book contract, mm -hmm. uh, 
So I didn't, I wasn't thinking of Netflix, but uh, <laughs> I was just, uh, just, but you know what else? I was also definitely understanding that no way would I write a doorstopper mm-hmm. biography. I just don't like that very much. I have to say just maybe partly because the, the life, you know, the, you know, the, cradle to grave, I guess they call it biographies. Mm -hmm. Um, They kind of, uh, you know, they, they, they allow the biographer a pass or they can on having to have a narrative structure. Right. And I knew that that would be deadly. Mm -hmm. So I needed to have a narrative structure. And I think you've said, it's like a coming of age story. I'm going to take Helen from just after she graduated from college Mm -hmm. to to when she's 31 and she has her first one person show and then just leave her there. No, I think it's so effective. I'm glad it's not a, a I might not have read it. <laughs> exactly. A, a, right. You yeah. wouldn't have, I bet. No, no offense, but I mean, those books, uh, I mean, there are brilliant versions sure. of those books mm-hmm. and Mary Gabriel's book is a great book, ninth street women yes. about five different women. But it's just all I guess I'm really saying is for me, I didn't feel that I that's my mode. But it's not and it's not even, you know, this this truncated or this like abridged. It's it's and it's not even like the essential, you know, it's it is a full story. Um, I don't know. I I think it just it works so well. It's just uh, I really, really admire that structure. And I, I feel like I learned so much and even about her before 1950. Um, and after 1960. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, just to say one thing on yeah. that. I mean, again, trying to make art and life come together in some way, you know, so not just her paintings, but writing about the paintings. Um, you know, as well as I do, that on any given day on earth, we are, of course, the sum of our momentary sensations and emotions. Uh, but we're, we're, we're also in constant touch with who we have been mm-hmm. in a somewhat random way, but sometimes very decisive way. I might, for example, for no particular reason, recall some event from my adolescence or indeed from my 20s or just from yesterday, right, today. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of that recollection, you know, that, that, that event from some other time becomes part of my day today. And I think that having realized that, I understood that I could use this structure of the 11 days in order to range around Helen's life uh, in a way that felt true to life, true to how a person experiences being alive. Mm-hmm. She was uh, married to Clement Greenberg, and the relationship wasn't without its problems. Um, they had a yeah. sort of a fraught relationship. But yeah, she actually wasn't married to him. Oh, she was not. She, that's right. She was. Yeah, but she she got married a little later in 1958 to Robert Motherwell, that's the right. painter. Uh, but but you're right. She had a long term relationship with Greenberg that lasted from 1950 to 55. And he is the one who. Can you talk a little bit about? Um, her Jewishness and this word from Greenberg that he used to describe inwardness. Yes, the German word innerlichkeit. That was a really 
important moment for me uh, reading his words there. Uh, it, it basically means, well, what he says is that for the Jew in the West, this is how he puts it, uh, it's very important to, on the one hand, not become a kind of um, invest all one's energy in political protests of different kinds. Um, and on the other hand, not to become a kind of, um, I don't know how he would call it or how I would call it, uh, like a kind of over emotive, oversharer of one's deepest, darkest feelings, you know, that mm -hmm. Greenberg from where he stood, which, you know, he was thinking about what is the ethical impact of art on our lives and even art made by Jewish people, you know, his point was, it's about this inwardness. It's about uh, having a kind of, creating a poised space of reflection for oneself. Um, and that, you know, is not really about the first person, you know, it's not yet another moment for, you know, someone to say, well, I think this and I feel that and so on, as if the world needs any more of that. It's more, uh, sinwardness is more that feeling somewhat akin to reverie, mm -hmm. where it's not so much that you're having thoughts, but thoughts are having you, mm. which is actually something my dad used to say. Of course, I didn't understand it totally back in the day, but I kind of get it now, you know, that the world is kind of happening to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, as anyone who knows me would say, yeah, oh yeah, he's, he's a pretty inward person. Um, and I guess I believe in the ethics and politics of that. You know, that um, I, I think of um, the great philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson and the way he would say that these moments, which he finally says are very few in a person's life, you know, you could live to be 80 years old and finally your moments of these kind of revelatory inwardness, like added up all together might be like two and a half hours of mm -hmm. your life. They're so transient. They seem to have no significance in the world at large. You kind of awake from them and the world is just as it ever was. But Emerson says, the only things that come from these moments are wisdom, power, beauty, just things like that, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm, you know, I'm as fragile as the next person, but I, I, I would say that whatever kind of poise I have might come very much from the fact that I know these moments are available. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Helen's work and then Greenberg's take on what is the role of mental life in churning deplorable chaotic times is are very, very meaningful yardsticks for me. That's so profound. What, what remains 
besides her works of art, of course, and a book like like yours, but what remains as the the true legacy of Helen Frankenthaler, either as something, I don't know, something concrete or something even figurative or metaphorical? What remains? What, what's something mm. that you'd like readers to understand? I think it is a question about, uh, you know, I, what is, well, Helen came from a time when people talked about a religion of art, you know, that they might not have used that exact phrase, but what they meant is that reading a poem, writing a poem, looking at a painting, attending a play, something like that, uh, you never know, might change your life. And it would do so in a way that you couldn't really quantify. You just would know that your life was changed. And indeed, in however incremental a way, your life would be deflected from that point on from the trajectory you thought it was taking. That way of viewing art is dead. Uh, it's dead in the discourse, it's dead in, um, it's seen to be basically a version of false consciousness because it, you can imagine it kind of is a little too mystical for people's tastes. It, hmm. um, you know, a question a person might more readily ask these days of, our, of an artist is who, who were they? What was their, uh, what were they trying to say? Uh, what was their social position, how, and even more, and this is how I was trained in graduate school, just like every other grad student um, back in the 80s, uh, you know, what's the con? What are they trying to get work over on me? I'm not buying it, you know. Uh, and perhaps in a pretty ordinary way, as I've gotten older, as I've had kids, like I see life is precious. Um, I don't really have as much interest in scorning being alive. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I don't have as much interest in, you know, taking a pair of scissors and puncturing the life raft that has been given me to float on a pretty terrifying ocean and that life raft is something like aesthetic experience like a religious feeling that it produces mm -hmm. and i would say to people um be open to that which is open for you and uh trust in that openness that vulnerability really to deliver you into a state of strength Alexander Nemroff, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Yvette. Alexander Nemroff is the author of Fierce Poise, Helen Frankenthaler and 1950s New York. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 